My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. We are really glad that you're here with us this morning. If I have not had an opportunity to meet you, I would love uh, the chance to do that. So if you have time afterwards, I encourage you to stick around. I would love to just say hi and meet you face to face. We are still in the Gospel of John. Three more weeks left. This week and two more weeks in this book, and then we will finish John. And we find ourselves here um, in the biblical timeline, um, in the church calendar, I should say, on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, a week before um, Easter coming into this week. Obviously, it, the way we're going through John, we're, we're coming in a little later than that. We did Palm Sunday several months ago in the book. And I, I love that the, the band chose that song, Hosanna, um, had flashbacks to 99 Passion for me as I was singing that song. It's awesome. And it's a perfect uh, fitting day um, to sing that song here on uh, what the church calendar would say is, is Palm Sunday. So let me pray with us and then we'll jump in um, to the text. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for um, your sovereignty and your providence to um, allow uh, writers like John to be there and be eyewitnesses to be able to capture the events that unfold in these final uh, weeks and days and hours of Jesus' life. And as we look at what John has written in his gospel, I pray that you would use that to change us through your spirit. That you would allow us to, to, to trust and believe that these are your words and they are written that we might believe in the words um, that John has written and the things that Jesus has done and the things that Jesus has said. So help us this morning. Help us believe. Help me be clear in my communication um, of your text and the truth this morning, Lord. And above all, I pray that your son is honored and glorified as a result of this time. So we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Five years ago, I had the opportunity of taking my first pastoral um, sabbatical since I've been in ministry. And a pastoral sabbatical is, um, really any kind of sabbatical, um, two of the main um, reasons why you take it or purposes are, one, to, to, to get rest, but to also get healthy. Find, maybe there are areas in one's life that are a little bit out of whack, and you need to spend some focused time getting healthy in those areas. And going into the sabbatical, I was tired. I was tired. And the main reason why I was tired is because I, haven't, I hadn't learned how to rest well. I hadn't incorporated and built in um, normal rhythms of rest into my day-in and day-out life, in my week-in and week-out life. I had two months completely away from ministry, completely away, zero church activities. We had some vacation planned in there, and we also spent a lot of time just at home as a family. I was able to get sabbatical um, coaching slash counseling, which is really just a, a professional counselor, biblical counselor that has experience walking people through a sabbatical. And the reason for that is because being immediately pulled out of the context that you know so well, there's a vacuum left there, and there, there needs to be intentionality on how you spend those hours that you now have freed up. And this this uh, particular uh, coach counselor that I had is, was kind of there to hold my hand through that and help me build in some of these things, some of these habits of rest and things that I could take back whenever my um, sabbatical was over. And for a guy who was stressed out 
and overworked and had a problem saying no and tired, this was a dream opportunity, a dream opportunity. But I didn't think having all this was enough, especially at the time. I needed to make the most of my time away. I, needed, I didn't want to waste my sabbatical. And so, obviously, we, I brought that to the table of, of, in, to my counselor, and we were working through that. Um, so, in those first meetings, when I showed him my list of books that I was going to read to find rest, he was not impressed. He was not impressed with that list of books. He told me he didn't want me reading unless it was the Bible, especially for the first half or that first month of the sabbatical. He was also wasn't impressed when I showed him my fancy chart, how I was going to invest more in my family over these next two months, and had all that worked out, was not impressed with that. You can imagine how much fun I was for Nicole being around the home so much during this time. Um, I can assure you she did not find the freedom that I found when I, when I showed her um, how I'd planned out hour by hour, week by week, how we were going to spend our sabbatical in rest um, no, no freedom from Nicole on that one. I was given this incredible blessing of the sabbatical and turned it into another thing to justify myself. I turned it into another performance. I turned it into another, another thing um, that I, I wanted to ace and do well at, and I wanted to justify that, that I was going to make the most of my sabbatical because it was given to me as a blessing, so I felt like I needed to kind of earn it back because of that. Such a picture of my dark heart to take something that by definition is built for rest. Sabbatical, rest. Cease to do activities that, that feel like work to heal, I turn that into another thing to accomplish or another thing to nail. Maybe you're like me and you feel like the work never finishes. It never ends. Maybe for you, rest is nowhere in sight. And you're drowning right now, just trying to tread water and there's no help that you can see that's coming to allow you to rest. Maybe you're a student and you're so anxious and you're striving to make the most of all your academics to make sure you get a good job and have this career and be successful. And you're so exhausted because of that that you, can't, that you don't have healthy relationships and healthy rhythms to your life that actually support you being a student. Maybe you're a parent and you're overwhelmed with the guilt and the shame because you've gotten angry and raised your voice again to your kids another time, and you're having trouble sleeping because of that. Or maybe you, you're in a relationship and you want a particular person to accept you or, or, or find you beautiful or attractive, or, or you just want that approval, and so you're doing whatever you can to earn that. And maybe... You have earned that, but then to keep that, you have to work even harder and harder and harder, and it never finishes. It's never enough. Maybe you're in here and you're approaching your midlife and you're starting to reflect on your career, and you're having thoughts of, what have I done with my life? Have I been enough? Have I done enough? Have I made my mark? 
and you're struggling with trying to distract yourself or add something else to your life to figure out a way to make up for where you don't think you're enough. You see, the pursuit to prove that you're good enough and that your life matters is exhaustive. It's an exhausting pursuit, and it feels like it will never end. It feels like it is never enough because it never is, and it's never going to be enough. The good news is today, for us, I think we're going to see that the, the, the scriptures, and Jesus specifically gives us answers to this problem. Today we find ourselves in John 19, that passage that we read, where John recounts the death of Jesus. This chapter has 42 verses, but because of time today, and I think of John's intention here, we're going to focus on three words. And these three words might be the, most, the three most important words ever uttered. Because these three words have the power to overcome all the never enoughs that I just described. We're going to get to that in a sec. But early in this chapter, John tells us about Jesus being flogged. The crown of thorns being pressed upon his head that created drops and trickles of blood flowing down his face. He's dressed in a purple robe in a mocking fashion, was punched and beaten by the soldiers. As Blake talked about last week, Pilate is playing this political game, and he's trying to keep everyone happy. He's trying to stay out of the situation enough to not have blood on his hands, and, but he's also trying to engage the situation to kind of play puppet master to try to get things to work out to his benefit. He tries to get Jesus to defend himself, but Jesus won't. He says, Jesus says in verse 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And we see in verse 16, it says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate says, I'm done with this. You take him. Verse 16 again says, So they took Jesus. And I want you to imagine this. I need you to... To, to picture this in your mind. Put yourself in this narrative that John is describing. And he went out and bearing his own cross. He's bearing his own cross. To the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I've written. I'm done with this. Just, I've, I've done it. It's over. I'm finished with this. But yet up to this point, we've seen the last several weeks leading into this, this passage that Jesus is in complete control. He's in complete control. He knows the purpose for which the Father has sent him, and his sights are set on accomplishing it. In this book, John has told us things like he loved his own to the end. And he, 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 he quotes Jesus saying, my soul is troubled, but for this purpose I have come. And he says to his father, in John 17, I've glorified you, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Our king, our savior, suffers and dies. 
And in verse 24, we see this um, kind of brief statement. This was to fill the scripture which says, and this was the first of three occasions that John highlights this, where he's recognizing that Jesus did the things that fulfilled the scripture that were previously written about him in the Old Testament thousands, some of, some of them thousands of years before. For thousands of years, the scriptures from Genesis have been pointing to this moment. This is the climax. This is everything has been pointing to this moment on the cross. We see in Genesis 3.15 this, this statement that where, where, um, where God is pronouncing judgment and a curse on Satan, the serpent there. And he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Meaning, looking ahead to Jesus, John is saying, yeah, you're going to get, you're going to win a battle against Jesus. You're going to win a battle, but Jesus is ultimately going to win the war. He's going to crush you, he's going to end you, and he's going to put you to death. That is what God is saying, looking ahead. This is in Genesis 3, looking ahead to the moment we see in John 19. And we see all the way to Revelation in chapter 7. We see this. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where they have come? By the way, this is John writing this in Revelation through a, through a vision he's received. Verse 14, I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation or followers of Jesus, really. They have washed their robes, and listen to this, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood that Jesus would shed on the cross. Revelation here in Revelation, it speaks of it. So from Genesis 3, we see all the way to Revelation, it is all pointing to this moment where Jesus would die on the cross in crucifixion. And Jesus was not only in control, but he knew the entirety of the scriptures were pointing to this moment. Now I want to focus on verse 28 through 30. It says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, again, to fulfill, the script, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And when you're reading this, I don't want you to read and to hear this, it is finished, as this weak, whimpering, submissive cry. That is not what this is. Jesus is in complete control. He, is, he, he knows what's happening. He's doing this to fulfill the scriptures. It is a ferocious, victorious cry. And in the Greek, it, 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 the Greek translation is tetelestai, or it is completed. My work is done. It is finished. These are Jesus' final words from the cross, at least the way John um, recounts the events. This is a perfect tense verb, this tetelestai, meaning the action happens in the present, and it continues on into the future. It's a cool grammatical thing here. So really, the, the translation could be, it is finished, and it will always be finished. So even the way John is writing this, he is, he's, he's kind of looking ahead, knowing that this is the completed work for all time for followers of Jesus. He was the perfect, spotless lamb needed for the atonement. His life lived in perfect obedience to God's law and allowed him to be this acceptable substitute for sinners like you and me. He completed the work God had sent him 
to do. Then there at the end, he says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Even at the end, Jesus is dying willingly on our behalf. That even that language, he gives up his spirit. Like it was time and he gave it up. No one took Jesus' life. He laid it down. This begs the question for us, a question we should be asking ourselves, what did he finish? What did Jesus' death accomplish? And those of us who've grown up in church here may say, yeah, Jesus' death, it saves us. That is true, but that's a pretty surface-level answer. That is true. Yes, it did save us, but, but Why? What made Jesus' actions here that John lays out in John 19, why does it save us? What, what work did Jesus actually finish here? And the more we understand this, the digger we deep into these, these deep biblical truths, the more we're going to appreciate and love and be able to trust his finished work in our day in and day out lives. And apart from Jesus, when we stand before God, we are guilty. In God's courtroom, we are guilty. We can't do enough to make ourselves righteous and holy for God to be able to accept us. Therefore, we are guilty and we deserve death. We deserve death apart from Jesus if we were to stand before God on our own. But in Jesus' death, God the Father lays upon God the Son, Jesus, all the guilt and wrath that our sin deserved. He lays that on him. And this is what we are watching in John 19 happen. God is laying upon Jesus the wrath and the sin that you and I deserved. This is what's happening when Jesus is dying for our sins. And Jesus bore it perfectly. To the end, he loved us, the scriptures tell us earlier in John. He totally satisfies the wrath of God because he went through it. He finished it. He completed the race. And he was the only one who has ever lived that could possibly die in our place. He was the perfect lamb. So when he died, we get his righteousness, those of us who are followers of Christ. When we believe that and have faith in that, his death and what it accomplished, we get his righteousness. Which means when God sees us in that courtroom, he doesn't see us in all our junk. God sees Jesus' righteousness, which allows him to accept us. It allows us to stand before a holy and righteous God. Theologians call this the alien righteousness because it is otherworldly. No human being understands it or can accomplish this righteousness. Only Jesus can give us this righteousness that makes us stand before God and be accepted. And that is such good news. This righteousness has been given to us and we receive it by faith. Another big word theologians use is substitutionary atonement. Meaning Jesus was our substitute and God accepted accepted his, his death as an atonement for our sin. We get his righteousness, he gets our sin. A totally unfair exchange for Jesus, but from our standpoint, it's the beautiful, scandalous, great exchange. He gets our junk, he gets our sin, we get his righteousness from the perfect son, and we're able to stand before God the Father. Scandalous makes no sense, but that's the truth. And that's what we receive if we have faith in the person and work of Jesus. 
It's beautiful. This is the gospel. This is the heartbeat of the gospel. Substitutionary atonement. This is why when we say Jesus' death saves us, yes, it saves us, but because of this, he had to die in our place, and he had to be the perfect, spotless lamb for God to accept his death. Listen to the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. Look back at, at He's really looking back at the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which was all pointing to this moment, and even the way that Jesus died was set up long before and how God's people related to um, God himself. Listen to this quote. It is now carried on by men ordained for the purposes of Aaron and the high priests and the Levites. Every morning and every evening offer a lamb. While great sacrifice are offered on special occasions, rams bleed, the necks of doves are wrung, and all the while the saints are crying, How long, O Lord? When shall the sacrifice cease? Year after year, the high priest goes within the veil and sprinkles the mercy seat with blood. The next year sees him do it the like, and the next, and again, and again, and again. David offers sacrifices. Solomon slaughters tens of thousands. Hezekiah offers rivers of oil. Josiah gives thousands of the fat of fed beasts, and the spirits of the, spirits of the just say, Will it ever be complete? Will the sacrifice never be finished? Must there always be remembrance of sin? We're getting tired of this. Will not the last high priest soon come? When is he coming? Will not the order and line of Aaron soon lay aside its labor because the whole is finished? Not yet. Not yet, you spirits of the just. For after the captivity, the slaughter of victims still remains. But look, he comes. Gaze more intently than before. He comes who is close to the line of priests. Look, there he stands clothed, not now with a linen ephod, not with ringing bells, nor with sparkling jewels on his breastplate like normal kings would, but arrayed in human flesh he stands, his cross, his altar, his body and soul the victim, himself the priest, and look, before his God he offers up his own soul within the veil of thick darkness which has covered him from the side of men. Presenting his own blood, he enters within the veil, sprinkles it there, and coming forth from the midst of the darkness, he cries, It is finished, it is finished. That for which you look so long is fully achieved and perfected forever. This is what the, 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 the cloud of witnesses in the scriptures throughout the centuries, Spurgeon's imagining what they would say. And Paul goes in depth in Romans 5, verse 6. Arguably the greatest teaching on the atonement in all of the scriptures. For why we were still weak. Listen to this. While we were still weak. Especially those of you in here who may not have a faith background, who may come here not as followers of Jesus. This is not about cleaning yourself up and being a good person. And then you can start coming to church. And then you can profess faith. No. For while we, the church he's talking to, we're still weak, we're still ungodly, we're still rebellious, we're still sinful, we're still at our worst. So Paul is saying, so those of you who are outside the church looking in, don't clean yourselves up, just come. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, right? Just common sense. Like, for, barely someone would die for someone who is holy and righteous. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us. That while we were still sinners, rebels, hateful towards him, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, there's that word again, by his blood, it's enough 
before God, much more shall we be saved him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It's not just finished then. It's still finished his work is what Paul's saying. More than that, we also rejoice, take joy in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's not only a courtroom thing, it's a relational thing. There, Paul says in verse 11, he brings us back into relationship. We're reconciled back into the family of the Father. So it's not just a courtroom thing, it's actually a familial thing. It's personal, it's relational. We can call God Father as a result of the atonement. The first step, action step out of this, we don't bring anything to God. We don't. We come empty-handed. We come to God like this. All of our righteous deeds, the good things we do. Hey, God, I'm a good person. No, 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 no. We don't get to do that. Jesus has already finished the work. God doesn't need any of that. We come to him open-handed, empty-handed. So when we try to work out, like work to achieve our salvation or try to justify ourselves in any area of our life, what we're saying is we're trying to bring something to God and say, look, look what I've got, God. We don't need to bring anything to the table to add to our salvation. Our attitude should be like that of the thief crucified next to Jesus, who in other gospel writers talk about him saying, save me. Just remember me in paradise. Where you're going, just remember me. That's all I want. We're the thief. We're the thief on the cross. That's our posture. That's our humility. We have nothing that we can offer to God, and that is such good news. That will drop the enoughs. That will drop us trying to justify ourselves because the one, the, the opinion of the one who matters most, it's been done. It's finished. God accepts us. He justifies us because of the person and work of Jesus. We can rest. This is our source of being able to rest as we live our life. This is the source of us being able to say enough, enough. Here's why this matters to our everyday life. Two things, kind of directions, I think, um, or, or two application points, I should say, coming out of this. The first place is we have to know where we can find rest. So everything we've been talking about for the last uh, several minutes here, like, we got to remember that. we got to remember where we find rest, where we find our justification, what God thinks of us right now, what God's look on his face is when he sees us. When he's gazing down upon you and you're a follower of Jesus, there is nothing but delight on his face as a father who loves his children. That's it. Nothing but delight because we have the righteousness of Christ. Jesus has finished the work. Think about it. When something is finished, when we finish something, we rest. Like we just, we can be. We can stop. But this takes practice. We have to trust. We have to, we have to preach this gospel, preach that it is finished good news to ourselves so we can be the kind of people who can rest from the striving and the exhaustion that this world often places upon us. When we wake up in the morning, we have Jesus' righteousness, and this changes, should change the approach we have to our entire day. But do we realize this? Do we realize that this should change the approach? We talk about quiet times in the church a lot. We, th this is the reason why we have quiet times. Not to check something off the list because it's the Christian-y thing to do. No, we have quiet times because we need to remember this kind of news every day. We can't just go off on our own and try to live our day. We have to remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. 
We have to remember the righteousness of Christ. We have to remember the good news so we can live, live out of that the rest of our day. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we spend time in prayer. It's why we, we, we strive to create pockets in our lives of solitude and silence, to clear everything out, to be able to fill our minds and our hearts with these truths, like it is finished. And if we don't believe and rest in this fact that Jesus finished the work and that we're brought back into this relationship with God, and this kind of justification trumps all other kinds of justifications, and maybe that you don't believe that, I would, trust, I would, I would ask that you would trust the scriptures. You would trust that the, the God, the creator of the universe, has sent his son to die to justify you, and it's the greatest form of justification that we can have. So what does this look like? One, we got to remember, number one. We have to remember. We have to preach this to ourselves and remind ourselves daily. The second thing we can do is we can be restful people when we leave this place. We can be restful people. Imagine if we were the kind of people who could say enough and rest. Imagine if you were the kind of student who was able to still work hard in school, make good grades, but you do that with this balance where you're also doing the things, other important things that God also wants you to do while you're in school. Build healthy relationships. Um, tell, tell others about him. You know, serve the local church, right? Like these are the things that God wants a healthy college student to be about. If you can rest from the striving of trying to, to, to have all your career and life planned out at the age of 21, it won't be enough, I promise. Imagine if you were a parent and not be racked by guilt and shame and still be able to get, get some sleep at night, even when you failed that day as a parent, even when you weren't the ideal parent and you raised your voice to your kids, that you were able to lay your head down on the pillow at night and just trust God with your kids, that you didn't need to be God in your home, that you didn't need to justify yourself with how awesome of a parent and how great your kids are behaved. That is a treadmill that leads to nowhere. Am I right, parents? It is never enough. You will never be a good enough parent. So trust him. Know that you're justified before God so you can be that kind of parent. Imagine if you were truly believed that you were accepted by God and you didn't have to look for that in other relationships. Like you can go into relationships with the freedom that the one whose opinion matters the most accepts you. Therefore, you didn't have to, to kind of be the chameleon in relationships just to try to get someone else you want their approval of to approve of you, to accept of you. It's exhausting to try to make other people godlike and justify yourself before them. Again, will never be enough. Imagine if you were able to approach your midlife um, with a biblical perspective that you aren't defined by how many accomplishments you have when you die. You all been to a funeral lately? Like, how many, how many trophies do we get to keep when we die? Nobody cares a rip about our trophies when they're doing a eulogy. When you go to a funeral and you hear a eulogy about how they invested in people, how they in, it preached the gospel, how they had influence on other people, those are the things that ring true. Those are the, that's the legacy we leave behind as followers of Jesus, not not our prizes, not our accomplishments, not, not, our, not how much money we made. We can only have that kind of foundation when we're trusted, we're trusting in the justifying work of Jesus. Imagine if we could be the kind of people who walk out those doors 
And instead of kind of following in, in, li- in line with the world, um, it, it's not enough. It's not enough. More, more, more. We can influence the world by being calm and peaceful and be people who embody the message of it's enough. He's enough. He's enough. And we can actually infect the world with something else other than anxiety because anxiety is spreading like a wildfire throughout the world right now. And this is the only hope for our world full of anxiety is resting in the finished work of Jesus. It is finished are the three words we must believe and embody to find rest and become peaceful people for our own selves and to be the kind of people we want to be when we walk out those doors. So with that, we turn our eyes to next week. We have Good Friday. We have Easter. They're both coming. I want to close with the end of this passage to kind of set us up for Friday. After these things... Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, we haven't heard of him since early, early on in the book of John, right? Seems like he's come around a little bit. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. He's worshiping him. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. This is a a hard... um, message thinking about our savior our king dying when we don't deserve it and it should be heavy but i pray that heaviness would turn into joy would turn into freedom because that death bought us freedom jesus death bought us acceptance before god and that is the greatest thing we could possibly ever have but god we need help believing that We need help getting that from from our heads and just knowing that as an intellectual idea to our hearts that will then change the way we live when we leave this place so we can be the kind of people who say it's enough. It's enough, and we can rest in you. And what a testimony people of peace and rest are in our day and age. So help us get there, God. Help us be through your spirit the kind of people who can go from this place and rest And that that would be attractive to people. Not attractive because we want to be awesome, because we want to point to the one who has given us the rest. And that's your son. Help us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.